Welcome to the CA Agenda podcast brought to you by ICAS. On this episode, I'm speaking with the Managing Director at the Climate Disclosure Standards Board, or better known as the CDSB, Mardi McBrien. Mardi has played a leading role in driving the integration of climate and environmental information into corporate reporting, with the same rigour as financial information globally for almost a decade now. Prior to the CDSB, Mardi has enjoyed an eclectic career which has seen her lead flagship environmental campaigns for the WWF, working with the United Kingdom's Carbon Market Policy for the Department for Energy and Climate Change, and Public-Private Partnership Management for the UK Timber Supply Chain. Mardi is a member of the FRC Advisory Panel, a Fellow of the RSA, and has participated in a number of industry-related advisory boards and committees as part of her role at the CDSB. Originally qualifying as a forester and environmental scientist and an agricultural economist, her volunteer activities include being a trustee for one of the world's oldest environmental NGOs, the International Tree Foundation, and a founding board member of WOCAN, Women Organising for Change in Agriculture and Natural Resource Management. Mari, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast today and thank you for taking the time to join us. Indeed, thanks for having me along. I'm really looking forward to this. So Marty, you developed an interest in the environment from a young age. Even during your time at high school, you were the environment school captain. Where did this passion come from and was there a specific event that sparked it? I'm not wanting to age myself at all, but back uh, back when I was a teenager in Australia, the real big issue of the day, that was the, uh, the hole in the ozone layer was discovered. And that to us meant that you know increased UV radiation. And, and I'm only second generation Scottish, so I've got really fair skin, which meant that we were all getting sunburned a lot more easier. So there was a huge political campaign around burning of chlorofluorocarbons or CFCs, as they came to be known in Australia. And uh, and the whole campaign that rolled out around any action around Australia that rolled out to get these products banned really inspired me. <laughs> it inspired me wanted to do more to learn about other issues and and to do more for I guess the planet in itself. So yeah, and just being outdoors a lot, you, you got to appreciate that you know, the lifestyle and what you, what you had and what you took for granted. So yeah, I guess I jumped in two feet first in high school and haven't looked back. Wow, yeah, you de- you've definitely started from a, from a young age, but you can de- you can see that it's from your own personal experience, right? Um, you're you're personally affected and touched by it, and you decided to commit your life to, to uh, towards this course, which is a huge more or less. <laughs> <laughs> so, since your time as environment captain, now you've held a number of roles within conservation. So, with organisations including the WWF, the Campaign to Protect Rural England, and the role you hold now as the MD at the Climate Disclosure Standards Board. And now for the benefit of our listeners who may not be familiar with the board, would you be able to tell us a bit about the work that it does and your role there specifically? Okay, so CDSB, Climate Disclosure Standards Board. So we were set up in 2007 at the World Economic Forum and their annual meeting in Davos. So where all the world leaders come together to kind of talk about the agendas of the day and do fantastic business and, and probably even find their next job, right? So they'd come to Davos in 2007. If we think about what where, where we were in 2007, it was financial crisis time. You know, we were just about to hit the, the global financial crisis. Mm-hmm. We also had seen an increase in uh, government talk and start of civil society action around climate change. We, we had the greenhouse gas protocol, that was sort of a consistent way to measure greenhouse gases for companies and individuals and investors. We had investors starting to be interested in this information um, from a capital allocation perspective. 
and we were seeing governments start to start to take interest. So we'd had the Kyoto Protocol that was signed in Japan, and we were coming up to the big climate change talks in um, Copenhagen, which was supposed to be the next landmark where we agreed on the next milestones we were all going to work towards to keep the planet below two degrees. Mm. And uh, what became really apparent is there, and also from an accounting point of view, we just had IFRIC 3, which was the interpretation for um, emissions rights. So, which was interpretive guidance for reporting emissions rights. So we had a, you know, an emerging carbon market at that time, which didn't last too long. We had an emerging carbon market, which meant we needed to know how to put the price of carbon on balance sheets and what that would look like. So there was a lot of activity going around in the accounting environment, the corporate investor space. But with that came a bit of confusion. So we were set up in the absence of a globally, um, globally agreed approach for reporting climate risk and opportunity to capital markets. And that's so essentially that was in the absence of an international accounting standard or someone like the OECD taking action to kind of create that international sort of covenant or approach. So we were we're only being set up as a project. We're not um, we're not our own organization. We're based in Science CDP and we produced a framework which looks a lot like accounting standards, CDSB, IASB, not a coincidence. I opened up the front cover. It used to be very same typeface, very similar language. You know, <laughs> we, we didn't try and disguise the fact we copied. Um, and, uh, you know, it really was then supposed to act in the absence of the international accounting, uh, international financial reporting standards set as doing anything on climate. So we were filling in a really important gap uh, in the market, which we hope someday someone was going to come and take and uh roll into that and we're starting to see that now so we have a framework and we do a lot of capacity building work with companies so everything from uh training uh sort of answering all those tricky how to what does it look like questions when it comes to reporting talking to boards producing e-learning just really helpful tools to get organizations started on and what can be quite a daunting task of thinking about how you report climate environmental and nowadays we talk about social risk too to capital markets Wow, so you've you've really been involved since the inception uh, around this topic of climate climate related disclosures and sustainability more more broadly. And now, fast forward to twenty twenty one, what what do you think are some of the main challenges that the CDSB faces today? Goodness, well, I used to have to beg to get in a room. Like I used to have, like people just be like, "What is CDSB? We just don't get it. We 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 don't you know we don't understand. Is this another reporting framework? No, no, it's just helping to help you do what you're already supposed to do, right? It's not another report. It goes in your annual report. It's the same. It's just to help you. People couldn't get their head around. We hadn't created another another reporting like another like a sustainability report or a, an integrated report. This wasn't another report. This was the same. So for us. Across the last 10 years, I used to, when when I could get in the door, and I finally started to get in the door, players like the European Commission would say to me, Marty, you just represent climate. Go away. Do environment. You, you know, you're just a bit player. You'd be like, oh, then you do environment, then climate becomes sexy again. And so it's, um, it, I guess it's been a constant challenge across the years, actually, try, as, as these topics have come in and out of favour with governments and, and regulators and civil society, trying to, trying to move at the pace that they are kind of moving at. On a day-to-day basis, though, for us, um, the biggest challenge is actually recruiting staff that understand, and I'm sure this is the same for a lot of the listeners here today, there's a real skills shortage in um, around the whole area of people that understand corporate reporting and financial accounting and audit and sustainability and sustainability issues. There's a real gap of people that can practically 
uh, help others, right, clear guidance, right, and support in this whole space. So I imagine it's even bigger when it actually comes down to the market, which actually people have to do what we're asking them to do and prepare it and, and move at the pace that the regulation is driving. So that's one kind of really big challenge we have um, and how it's changed. I mean, we used to go months without seeing something in the press on this. And just in the last 10 days, we've had the G7 announcement backing mandatory uh, climate reporting. We've had a, the same G7 announcement backed uh, nature-related reporting to capital markets. And in the same press release, again, they backed a global approach to sustainability standards via the IFRS Foundation. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't have guessed that, that you'd get that kind of momentum in a week 10 years ago. You know, I wrote my first letter to IOSCO asking them to act in 2012, I think. And, uh, you know, eight years later, they set up the Sustainable Finance Network, which has led to the ISSB, putting pressure on the IFRS Foundation to set up the ISSB. So the last few years, the momentum has been almost relentless. But but that's also um, the urgency of these issues, I think, is being felt more and more by individuals. And I think that's that's got a lot to play as well. Really interesting the point you made there, and you didn't expect to be in this position, say say a decade ago. Um, and now re- reflecting on that, do you think that are you are you happy where we are as a society and as as, as businesses as a whole, or do you think there's more more to be done? I think there's always always going to be more to done to be done at the moment, but I don't think we've got long to do it. I think we've spent a long while. The last ten years has moved quite slowly, really, to where we are. We needed to be. You know, where we are now about eight years ago and I think as a whole society we, we probably don't have more than five years that, that's not and that's not a not a long time at all and and I guess going back to another point you made there which was also really fascinating that was around recruiting staff and the challenge and to me I'm, I'm seeing that there's a, obviously there's a gap there right there's some kind of educational gap there in terms of having the suitable skills and qualifications um around this topic so what what, how, what what are your thoughts around closing this gap I you know I think this gap is is I mean I can't I'm talking so much lately about the skills gap needed to to meet the 2030 agendas that we're all setting on climate and sustainable development I think organizations like ICAS have a massive role to play in this in terms of educating the new mem not just the new members and those coming in but actually that the existing membership base some may only work, well, may work in SMEs, not only work, but work in SMEs. And they may think, well, actually, it's not relevant to me. It's relevant to absolutely every business. It will touch every business in some way, whether that's increased insurance premiums, light bulbs, didn't we hear this week? Light bulb regulations are changing. They cost water costs, power costs, boilers. You know, it will hit us all in some way and as individuals and as businesses. And I think that the further and earlier in advance you can act, the lower cost of actually acting, the lower you know, financial cost of acting to address these issues actually is and you, you can manage it and you can manage that transition much more efficiently and effectively than you can if you kind of put it off and you don't really know what you're doing and you kind of get there so I think ICAS and and, and you know any sort of all professional educational bodies globally whether it be accountants even I mean I'm a, I used to be a chartered forester it affects us too right mm-hmm. uh, you know everyone down the line in you know in professional qualifications need to have sustainability built in and embedded across the training, not a standalone, uh, not a standalone modules necessarily, but actually embedded across because this is, you know, and needs to be a business as usual issue, not not a standalone or a siloed issue. If if truly we are going to uh, have a fabulous planet for our kids and grandkids to live on in in fifty years time. So, Marty, 
And there's another piece in relation to this, and that's really around sustainability becoming much more mainstream. And uh, you talked about it. You talked about the fact that a day doesn't go by uh, with, with without an article being featured on this topic. Most me- news and media outlets have dedicated sections on this. Corporate organisations are now um, hiring chief sustainability officers and dedicated resources and staff around this. But I guess you know there's still a lot of sceptics out there. And there's still a lot of skeptics around sustainability in the corporate space. So how do we move move the perceptions from it being a sort of tick box exercise to the heart of decision making in business? And what roles do CAs play in that? So I, I, I truly think that this has to start at the top. I mean, we need this, you know, sustainability needs to be a full time board sport, right? This can't, this can't, if it doesn't start at the top, you're not going to, you're not going to get the signals that you need all the way through the business that this is actually really important strategic issues for the company. So must not at the top and work its way through then through the, the, you know, the strategy risk and right through to the KPIs metric through remuneration, you know, through the whole package of, of sort of standard business operation. We, you know, I think when things become tick box and when we have them as tick box, they don't get the same attention. They don't get the same rigor. They don't, um, you know, everyone always says to us, can you just like produce a template for sustainability, like for, for climate related risk disclosure, we can copy. Well, no, because one, it's not the same for everyone. And two, you just get the same old, you know, boilerplate out year after year after year. And actually that wouldn't actually address the changes that are happening year in year, not just to climate, not to the science, the regulation, but to the business and the business's evolution. So it's really um it's really important that each business stops and thinks about what this truly means for them and works right across the business. Now, the chartered accountants, they sort of sit at the heart of the business, right? They understand the numbers. They understand the risks. They understand where things are moving. They understand the things that are going in and coming out. They have such a sense. They have the ear of the CEO. They have the ear of the board. They have a seat often on the board. They have a really important role to play in influencing what happens? They, they, you know, they understand the internal controls. They can see how they can be adapted, adapted for sustainability-related information. They would know what you know. They could then, from that, be able to see what new ones we needed. Working with the more traditional sustainability professionals to help develop those. I think there's a, there's a, a, such an important role that chartered accountants can play in this structuring data. Even you know they're, they're so good at, at these functions. And traditionally, sustainability professionals aren't so good at a lot of those things, right? They're very good at telling a good story, collecting data, engaging with stakeholders. And when you combine these two together, you get a great conversation and some fantastic outputs. So I think chartered accountants really do. And, and you know, I'm, I'm never going to say accountants will save the world, but I think they can go a long way to helping save the world. Um, and uh, now the challenges, as I said earlier, is, is, is us, all of us working to help, help, you know, educate and bring the profession along so it's in a position to be seen as the leaders. No, I completely agree and I think the point there really that hits home is you know as finance professionals we're the heart of, of business decision making the engine room so to speak and no pun intended there but you know we're, 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 we're at, the, at the heart of it right and so there's a significant role to play in terms of touching different aspects of the parts of the business we're also leveraging our skills and, and as, as you pointed out managing the data understanding the, the the commercials and how that plays into this broader discussion so touching on that there's a number of uh, emerging disclosures um, that are coming up that will affect businesses in the UK and around the world could you shed a bit of bit of light on that for the benefit of our listeners 
So I guess over, I guess the biggest area at the moment where we're, where we're really looking at the changing the sustainability reporting landscape is being driven by the international financial reporting standards setters and their establishment potentially at COP26 in Glasgow next year is the um, establishment of an international sustainability standards board or the ISSB. And that's, that's looking to bring together five reporting frameworks and standards to create one global approach to ESG standard setting. So that would bring together ourselves from CDSB, um, the SASB and IRC standards and frameworks, the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures recommendations, so they would come into this, as well as the World Economic Forum's International Business Council's cross-sectorial metrics that have been developed and launched last year. So those five frameworks and standards are all sort of cut and pasted and, and mixed up a bit. And then put through the uh, sort of same sort of language and process as the IASB and hold the bottom. At COP26, we'll see the potential release of a climate-related standard under the IFRS Foundation's new ISSB, which hopefully will get the same traction as international accounting standards. And uh, by all good signals, even the US is interested as well. And we haven't had that with FASB, so, you know, with accounting standards. So this is a really good signal that we could soon, you know, in the next few years have a globally accepted accounting as sustainability standards led by the IFRS Foundation. And although it's starting with climate, it will very quickly move out to cover all sustainability um, topics. So you could imagine within five years, you have a globally accepted framework companies are reporting against on sustainability issues. That's quite fast and quite cool. That's got a huge, yeah, 140 odd countries, you know, that can have, and there's a significant amount of capital um, markets attached to that. That could have a really significant impact on how we think about sustainability in business. That is a significant structural change in the market, right? And I, I don't think I've seen any other any other disclosure or, or topic been been moving as fast as, as as this. And obviously, we understand why. Um, but it's it's fantastic to see. Um, and you, and you mentioned there, obviously, you know, the twenty sixth UN Climate Change Conference, COP twenty six, taking place in, in in Glasgow this year. Um, and you've already given your thoughts on on on, on around climate climate change disclosure, but what are your other thoughts around what you'd like to see happen um, at COP26 this year, or what you'd like to see come out of it? Well, COP26 this year is already about the money, right? The climate finance to support the action that needs to happen over the next you know, couple of decades if we're going to get to our targets. So we, we want the money. You know, We need to start seeing money coming out of uh, richer governments, I guess, um, richer governments to support the uh, global south to, to progress um, at the pace it needs to. So I think that's a really important outcome that we're all looking for. Um, from a, I guess, from a corporate reporting accounting perspective, I, I mean, the, if, if we got the announcement of, of the Sustainability Standards Board going ahead and the climate prototype out, that's in itself another enormous milestone, um, particularly as it already has the G7 backing to, to re and, and the financial stability board's backing as well. A really significant step forward again in this. What another, I mean, another great step that will also support the ISSB potentially in its establishment would be more governments committing to mandatory task force on climate-related financial disclosures reporting because that has been built into the, the ISSB climate standards. So that would also show more significant momentum towards uh, mandatory climate reporting uh, and disclosure. So there's a there's a few things there that we're 
particularly looking for. I think there's going to be a huge push from the investment community to, you know, for change. You've seen, I mean, you can't have missed the call. Every company is saying we're going to net zero at the moment. Every single company just about is committing to net zero in the lead up to the climate change talks, particularly here in the UK. And investors are making more and more announcements around their commitment also to move their portfolios to net zero, putting more pressure on companies to actually have to react to that as well and have to know what, you know, more and more, more and more financial institutions need to know what they've got on their books you know, what carbon they're carrying, what liabilities they're carrying from a climate front. And we've just had climate auction, you know, first carbon market auction in Asia recently, 50 pounds a ton. Great, big, big money. I don't know if it's actually, I don't know if it's dollars or pounds, but 50, 50 something is still a lot, right? As long as it's pounds or dollars, it's still a decent amount for a ton of carbon. So, you know, it, that, oh, when I say decent amount, it's, it, you know, it's not cheap, right? So, you know, these things, you know, do need to be factored in. So I think there's, there's lots of really, you know, potentially game changing um into you know things that can happen out of cop 26 this year and and i hope the sort of virtual in-person event that it's going to be allows for um the connectivity and the learning that you do get if you do go to cop so i've been to a few of them over the years and where i found that i get the most out of them is, is not so much the negotiations but actually meeting all the different governments and different civil society actors and and talking to them and learning from them and sharing information because mm-hmm. often it's those civil society actors that go back to their countries and can take what you give them as sort of, you know best practice that we've developed here in the UK and can implement that or can take that learning away with them so you know we we as we as also as a civil society actor need to think about how we can do some of that more effectively online for example over the next 6 months Marty, some some really useful insights there and something that you mentioned there specifically around, I guess, knowledge sharing and, and education and changing views and attitudes. And you touched on this earlier as well, but do you think attitudes are really starting to shift and change across the globe around around the topic of sustainability? Yeah, I, I really do. I think five, even two years ago, you often heard about climate deniers in headlines and people mm-hmm. you know, saying, oh, this is a hoax. You just don't. I mean, maybe because we don't have Donald Trump around anymore, but we just do not hear this at all anymore. Like, you don't hear about a climate denier headline anywhere. You don't hear people saying that you know clean water is not an. You know, all these issues, social issues. I think COVID's really brought social issues to the forefront and put them at the front of people's minds and made them realise they're a sustainability issue. Mm-hmm. I think there's lots of things over the last 12, 18 months that have really started to shift people's minds and perceptions as a whole about um, well-being and what affects well-being, what affects lifestyles, what affects what's important to them. And I think that that change as well. Um, you know, if you think if there's any, you know, if there's anything good that's come out of COVID, I think it's our our ability to have stopped and actually realise what's really important to us all. And I think the environment and sustainability issues have have sort of come out when people have stopped, really had time to think about it and been able to make more change. My friends that typically just thought of me as a bit of that green kind of freak on the side mm-hmm. um, now actually are all almost trying to trump me and doing better than I am and actually undertaking actions on a daily basis that can have a more of a you know neutral or positive effect on the environment and the planet. So I think that this last 18 months has really, I think, really helped as well to move allow people to stop and reset and, and move forward and then consider these issues. No, that's a really useful insight. So, and, and I guess you, the, the perception moving from the, I guess, the, the green, the forester hippie to, to, <laughs> to, to, to a topic that's become really, really important for, for people in, within your network. And it's, sim- it's similar to what I've seen in terms of 
I think is trickling down to into mainstream, into consumers, into individuals, into families, into homes, and that discussion start to come to the forefront. I know, I know for myself, um, one 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 comment that really um, increased my commitment, let's say, to the sustainability agenda was the fact that there's no other, I guess, no other global social issue that has a clock in the middle of the room, right? There's a countdown. There's a countdown timer there, and you've got to make a decision. Um, and you've got to make, you've got to act on that and create change. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And, and sometimes with sustainability, we just think about it from an environmental perspective. But there's also a huge number of social issues in, you know, everything from diversity to slavery to, mm. you know, uh, the, um, like living wage, right to inclusiveness that all fall under the the, social, the sustainability agenda as well. And I think we, you know, we often, and CDSB is mainly set up on environmental issues. We have just started working in social, but we're in the moment, one of the questions we get asked most often by people calling us is saying, if we're trying to do climate reporting and think about our transition and all these social issues are coming up, can you help us with that and how we report those? And so I think the connectivity between these issues that we once thought we could just think of in silos is becoming more and more apparent that these things do cut across everything all our lives all of our business the whole business and we need to think about it as a whole marty you mentioned the the interconnectedness right and the number of social issues and you know it's quite apparent to see some of the inequalities that come about um as a result of you know climate change and, and sustainability more broadly for example you know poorer communities being affected by flooding for example um what are your views on that and, and how and, and how that interconnectedness is playing uh, a role in decision making for businesses? I think this is a really important point. So, you know, as a business makes a decision, for example, all of a sudden you might say, well, look, we've, we've been manufacturing this particular product in this place for the last 30 years. Actually, under a, you know, a two degree, we've, we've conducted some scenario analysis and under a two, under a 1.5 degree world actually, we can't afford, we cannot do business in, in this location anymore because of we won't have access to water, we won't be able to you know, get the products because we'll have to source them further afield, you know, whatever that story is. But what underpins all of that, that factory, is a workforce. What do you do with all those staff? What do you do with those jobs? And we're starting to see that with the winding down, for example, of coal-fired power plants now. So, you know, they've got a massive staff around them, often in a quite rural location. And if we just snap close a power plant, what do you do with those two and a half thousand people that work there? What, what do they do? Mm-hmm. They become unemployed and that has further social issues that go with that, just as an example of, so we're saying all oh, divest from all, you know, divest, get out of coal, don't do coal and uh, shut your power stations. And what do we do with those communities that have been built to service those, those environments? So this is, this is what we're sort of talking about in terms of social issues and transition. It's making sure that in this particular instance, it's making sure that, you know, there's enough of a time period. You can retrain staff. You can think about other industries that could go. There. You know, there's a whole sort of planning that has to take place with, with governments. And I know that's something in Australia we've seen um, around um, some of the shutting down of the coal-fired power plants in some rural areas. And um, so that's an example. We've also got, um, I guess there's more in terms of, like you said, about flooding, in terms of drought, in terms of a living wage, paying living wages to people, to getting people to the living wage. You know, there's there's so many issues that come out when you stop and you think about at beyond um, beyond the sort of more physical physical and transition risks. But when you think about how to what we're going to do with our with our people, making sure that they're in you know, working in safe safe places. You know, these industries all start moving around the world to new places. Supply chain starts alter things become quicker. You know, do we know what's in our supply chain? Do we do we know where it's come from? Do we know 
it is properly certified. We know the staff are being you know, properly looked after in those in those locations. So there's, there's, there is a lot that sits behind uh, behind it. But I think there's more. Unfortunately, there's been some big disasters in the last few years that have really like Rana Plaza that happened. That was um, that really brought these issues in, into the front of people's minds and, and that they are starting to think about them. And, and there's nothing that pleases me more when we're being challenged in the CDSB secretariat about how to do this, because it means people are starting to take this seriously and do it properly. And that's what we really want. I guess it goes back to your point that you made made right at the beginning um, around the challenge that you initially had of getting into boardrooms, right? I think it feels like the challenge is probably the opposite now. It, it can be. You'd be surprised, though. I, I think there's been a bit of momentum around governance, around, you know, from the board of the top down. Mm-hmm. There still needs to be a lot more. You know, there's still it's still not where it needs to be. Mm-hmm. And, and we, we just read a whole lot of report re- corporate reports recently. That basically indicated that, and uh, there's still more to be done. However, I would say there's a lot more training and resources out there for boards than there's ever been before. And organisations like Chapter Zero in the UK provide those for free on their website. And I suggest anyone who is, you know, would like to know about it from a corporate governance perspective and goes and does that. Also, we have we power the TCFD Knowledge Hub in the TCFDSB Secretariat, and there's a free module on there actually on governance on around climate issues. So and also 101 for accountants. So there's stuff on there. There's lots of free stuff out there to help people. I think that's also really important. I think five years ago, there wasn't much free stuff to just to get you started, to make you dangerous, you know, give you enough information to start asking questions confident, you know, with enough confidence, whereas, you know, some people don't ask questions because they don't think they understand it all enough to give you enough information to get you started and know what else you need to go and find. You're an absolute mind reader because you've obviously preempted my <laughs> my next question, um, which was around, you know, uh, where where could our members or listeners upskill themselves around around this topic? And you've already mentioned a few platforms there and ICAS has its own sustainability hub as well. But are there any other, uh, other, other resources that you'd like to mention? Sure, there's a CDSB website. Um, but, but most particularly for accountants on there is we have a series of publications. The first was Uncharted Waters, and now we've got three, one that's out already. Two more papers that are coming out on reporting account uh, climate information using existing accounting standards. So using what you already got and you already know and how you'd use those to report climate risk and opportunity. Uh, and that includes the links across to the financial information in the back, right? Because these things have financial implications and that's the area that's currently been uh, most, well, I can't say it's worst, you know, least least done, least reported globally, uh, and why a lot of regulation. So regulation coming out here in the UK is actually pushing for that to happen on a mandatory basis because it's not happening. So those are great guidance, particularly around that accounting for climate piece. And we are having an event at COP in Glasgow, which you're all welcome to come to, which is around accounting for climate and how to do that. So and I, I know that it will also be live streamed. So watch out for that. Fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing some of those details. We'll definitely be seeing you at COP, but we'll be sharing all those details in the show notes for, for our listeners there who would like to find Thank out you. find out more. So, Mandy, you're also one of the founding members of WOCAN, which stands for Women Organising for Change in Agriculture and Natural Resource Management. Would you be able to tell us a little bit more about, about how that came about and what WOCAN's mission is? It's not a catchy name, is it, when you have to say it at the full full expanded (laughs) acronym at all. And I remember being around the table in Rome with a group of women, all all much more older than me, because this happened uh, quite some time ago, back in 2003 or 2004, from my memory. And it was 
just as I was finishing my term as president of the International Forestry Students Association. And I'd spent a year, um, very fortunately, you know, sort of traveling the world and representing this youth voice, the very important voice of youth in the forest sector and the education, the importance of education and, and giving students opportunities. And so uh, anyway, as part of that, I met a lady who had this great idea that I want to send up a, set up a network initially to support professional women working in developing economies to be able to do more to be able to do more in the in, in the emerging economies that they're working in, to be able to help capacity build with others and build and build and build out. Um, I thought, well, that sounds like an absolutely fantastic idea. And so I went along to this meeting in Rome for over a weekend. It was a weekend thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we sat down and there was a huge variety of people from UN agencies and business. And it, like, just, I could not believe them. But I want to say huge, it was like 10 of us. But the, just the diversity in me, and I think I was in my early twenties at the time. Just, just a fantastic environment to sit around as everyone's buzzing about how can we create something that can support others. And actually, there was men at the table too. I have to say, it wasn't just women. Um, and before we knew it, we knew what we needed to do. And I guess in, in the end, the mission sort of nowadays is really about supporting women's leadership development to empower women that they're working with to take action on climate and livelihood related projects. So a lot of this does happen in sort of the emerging economies and and more developing countries. And more recently, which I find absolutely cool, uh, is the development of the W standard, which is a certification framework, which quantifies and monetizes the social impact created by women uh, and recognize and reward them for their contributions to sustainable environments and communities. And they've gone on to become the women, the, the one of the women voices for the UN uh, Climate Summit, for example, and many other organisations around the world. Having so it's a membership body, but they're actually driving quite a lot of uh, sort of grassroots leadership empowerment activities uh, right where they need it. Because in a lot of these communities, it's the women that uh, that need the help, and, and you create a lot of you know, the decisions, do a lot of the work. So it's mm-hmm. a it's a it's a good little. Uh, it was a good thing to be involved in. And nowadays, I, my, my, my current uh, charity is the International Tree Foundation, which is the oldest environmental NGO in the world. And they're about to turn 100. And I think that's pretty. And we're, we're planting a million trees in Kenya around the water towers, all again on an agroforestry livelihoods basis to help local communities and empower local communities to be able to take, you know, look after themselves, create action, spread, you know, reforest a country that's, you know, at some of its lowest lowest areas but we also do you know lots of other things here in the UK and and other places around the world so yeah I, I like to have like a little side interest that's still back to my roots of being a forester <laughs> even though <laughs> I no longer work in forestry I can't quite escape you know this idea of you know uh, communities and trees I think it's they're so important as part of the wider sustainability agenda but just for people in general. Marty Thank you for your time. It's been an absolutely fascinating um, discussion. As as definitely as a as a veteran in this industry, um, I've learned a huge amount through through our through our chat, and I hope the listeners uh, will do as well. Um, if any of our members want to get in touch with you, how could they do so? You can. I'm on LinkedIn. So Mardi McBrien is my my name. So just as you spelt it, as you can see it. Um, you, I'm on Twitter. I use all of the social media things, and also just via cdsb.net, our website. All of our materials up there. We post loads and loads of things up there. Like I said, everything we put up is free. Go there, have a look, and if you've got any questions, reach out. My team are great. They love to have a chat. They love to chat to interested people, and they love to help. They've got loads of energy, like me. They're they're a really fabulous bunch. So you know ask the questions and you know we're here to help so i look forward to hearing from you thank you so much marty